0: So a couple months minutes back, we spoke with Dr. Ritika Shrimali about the farmers' protests in India, which as of this recording are still ongoing. And we know that these farmer protests are a reaction to changes in agrarian relations that the current Indian government is trying to enact, or they've already enacted them. These changes would impact the way that farmers get their credit, the way they sell their produce and to whom they sell it. And ultimately, many of them argue it would even lead to their alienation from the land. Now, if farmers succeed and prevent these changes, or at least they get some concessions, then we can start to understand how social movements or collective action are often not only reactions to economic changes, but can themselves be very influential in determining what economic change actually looks like. In previous podcasts, we've discussed with guests about how colonialism and specifically capitalist colonialism impacted the political economy of South Asia. So with Dr. Imran Ali, we discussed colonial impact on agrarian relations in West Punjab. And with Dr. Utsab we spoke about the colonial drain, its relationship to agriculture, why Europeans had to come to subtropical and tropical countries to get goods that they couldn't produce themselves, especially in winters, and also the implications of that for food security. But how did peasants react to these changing class relations? How did the changing agrarian political economy lead to, say, resistance from peasants or even radical movements that are based in the peasantry? Before we go on to discuss this, it might be important to revisit what we mean by peasant. So a lot of people think that this is an insult, that if you call somebody a peasant, you're speaking down to them. And that is one way to use it in the English language. But that's not necessarily true in the world of academia or in the world of politics, for that matter. A peasant is somebody who owns or rents land, that is, they possess land, and they are directly involved in its cultivation through the use of their own labor and the use of their family labor. So, if somebody has a bunch of land and they're simply hiring somebody else, they're not actually working on the land themselves, then technically, or that is analytically, they wouldn't really count as a peasant, but politically, they might still continue to consider themselves a peasant. So that's a, that's a bit of a tricky thing, the definition. Generally, when we're looking at peasants, we'll see that part of what they're produced, they have to give up to some kind of higher power, an overlord, for example. Uh, Or we can be a bit more specific. Peasants produce a surplus. Part of that surplus goes as tax to the state. Another part of that may go as rent to a landlord, right? If a peasant is renting that land, then they'll have to pay the rent. But it's called appropriation of surplus because that landlord is not producing the surplus. The state is not producing the surplus. It's the peasant who's producing it. It just gets appropriated. By them. Now, peasants can also lose part of their surplus through market mechanisms. For example, if there are unfair prices for fertilizer or seeds, which are inputs that you need for the farming process. Or on the other side, when you're going to sell your produce and the person who's buying them, often called a middleman in South Asia, they're called artis, they may purchase them at a fairly low price and then go somewhere else and sell them at a very high price. And so that kind of gap between what the peasant is getting for it and what the arti is getting for it is part of the surplus that's in fact appropriated by the arty or the middleman. So back to colonial political economy, as the agrarian relations changed, we did see a lot of peasant resistance in South Asia. There's this idea that South Asian peasants were docile, Or were not rebellious, but that's simply not true. There was a lot of rebellion, and especially around the beginning of the 20th century, we see that many of the people who were trying to organize and mobilize in the peasantry were inspired by socialist and communist ideals, especially after the Russian Revolution of 1917. There's people like Bhagat Singh, who is fairly well-known. But before him and after him, there were a lot of other movements, including in what is now Pakistan. Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we talk about the relationship between politics and economics, the relationship between power and production, and sometimes a whole bunch of other stuff. I am your host, Naman Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy, at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss agrarian change and peasant resistance in Pakistan, I invited my friends Dr. Qasim Tirmizi and Shah Zabraza. This is the first part of a two-part podcast. The next one will discuss post-colonial developments into the 1970s. So, Dr. Qasim Tirmizi is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Global Development Studies at Queen's University
1: in Canada we do research on peasant struggles in Punjab uh, from the 1880s to early 1950s.
0: And Shaza Bresa is a PhD researcher in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Toronto, also in Canada.
2: I've done fieldwork in South Punjab, specifically in D.G. Khan and Rajpur, and that area that was once called the Punjab Frontier, um, looking at kind of the endurance of colonialism in the post-colonial. Pakistan, and also kind of struggles against, um, you know, struggles against the endurance of colonialism in post-colonial Pakistan. So looking at that dynamic um, through the site of Rajanpur, Khan.
0: Right. So both of you are looking at questions of colonial political economy and what that means for agrarian political economy and and peasant struggles. So I wanted to start by asking you, Qasim, to tell us a little bit about your work Uh, if I understand correctly, a lot of this revolves around understanding how colonialism changed the relationship that we in Pakistan, or at least in Punjab, West Punjab especially, um, had toward food. Uh, I know we've spoken to Dr. Imran Ali about the way that colonialism changed class relations in central Punjab, invented them in some ways out of whole cloth, but uh, we didn't really discuss what that meant for food um, and I think there's this concept called the food regime, which uh, I, I was hoping you could explain to us.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, if we look at, <clears throat> I mean, if we take uh, in parts of, let's say, eastern Punjab, you normally the way agriculture operates is through rain-fed agriculture, and which would be quite different from what would happen in western Punjab, where, like, you know, if we go back to the 1840s, let's say around the time when uh, the British occupied uh, Punjab or transitioning from the uh, Sikh regime to the British regime. You know, at this time, what you have was a uh, majority of these regions were dominated by nomadic pastoralists. Uh, and nomadic pastoralists would be in the highlands. Uh, you also had some agriculture uh, around uh, the riverine areas, let's say around uh, the rivers, you know, the rivers would get inundated through the monsoon rains, and then that would make this fertile land. Uh, you also had some people who had well agriculture. Uh, you know, they they put up a well and, you know, they they drew out water and that would irrigate that area. And uh, usually people, uh, so while it's mostly dominated by nomadic pastoralists, you did have these, you know, a little bit of agriculture in this right, area. Right. At the same time, uh, the way in which uh, during the the Sikh regime and similar to when the moguls were in this area, uh, you know, you would have access to this land. You were given rights to do cultivation and you would have to give a portion of that cultivation. Uh, So it would be, I mean, I don't know the exact percentage off the top of my head right now, but, you know, you, you would have like, you know, if you had a good harvest, you would give more that year. If it was a drought, you know, you wouldn't give that too much. Uh, and so people you know you you survived you didn 't maybe accumulate a lot, but you know you didn 't have surplus, but you did survive and you did have access to land i mean generally, the population had access to land if you were in, if you 're not a nomadic pastoralist uh, i mean there was you know uh, a degree of hierarchy, maybe some people didn 't have land, some people were maybe working for uh, people who did have land uh that started transforming. With uh, the British occupation, I mean, one thing which was really important was uh, when the British arrived, they tried to formalize uh, land ownership. And they were really in favor of, let's say, nomadic pastoralists, and so they started, you know, allocating land. Okay, this is uh, this is your plot of land. They tried to identify villages. Uh, there wasn't, you know, people didn't really associate themselves as living through this kind of concept of villages. But you know, the British were trying to; uh, they were imagined, you know. Uh, They're probably imagining, you know, Fran- uh, French or English kind of medieval uh, times, and trying to associate that. You know, the village was the normal order, and also agriculture and settled agriculture was that which was productive. And you know, nomadic pastoralism wasn't something which was very valued. Uh, and so, so, you know, they started allocating, and they started introducing also. Uh, there's a greater importance to money uh, to have, you know, make a payment. Uh, based on a certain amount per year. Uh, So, you know, they would do these long elaborate assessments of land of like, okay, this is how much production should be normal for this type of earth and this type of location. And you'd have to pay that amount. And what that also introduced was that people, you know, to satisfy paying those regular payments, they started taking out loans. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, according to the harvest times and at, with the cycles of agriculture at, during, uh, let's say the Sikh period or the Mughal period, but now it was according to these regular cycles that the British imposed of paying, you know, certain periods. And so then people started taking out loans. And so you started having the importance of money lenders. Right. Also at this time. Uh, I mean, also combined with this, you know, things are also happening in England. I mean, like going back to like, Uh, to the 18, you know, in 1846, you had the repeal of the corn laws. So the the corn laws were tariffs that were, that the British had imposed on their own population. And if you, uh, for anything which was imported, you know, imported grain had to be, there was a a tax on that. And so that really encouraged, you know, their own agriculture. Uh, Once they repealed that, they start bringing in things, you know, things get imported Uh, more easily into Europe. Uh, So at the same time, you also have, you know, in Punjab, you have the development of uh, railways. Now, railways, you know, in a place like Pakistan, we often say that, uh, oh, like people say, look at the British. They brought us railways. Uh, I mean, we can look at a map of the railways and we start seeing, okay, where are these railways coming from and where are they going? And they all lead to, you know, like if you look at these maps from the 1900s, they're all leading to the port of Karachi or they're leading to Calcutta or to Bombay. And they're all going to, I'd say these major port cities and they're also running through important areas where sort of, grain is being produced. Uh, so, you know, you have the development of these, these railways, you have also canal colonies being developed from the 1880s onwards in Punjab, you know, in, the, in Western Punjab. So this really expands. So uh, Pasara has become really marginalized in this new frontier. Where, uh, and you don't have the priority of river type of agriculture, river inundated agriculture, but now you can expand uh, agriculture into the highlands. Uh, and so, uh, and you know, the, I think maybe your previous speakers have probably also talked about this that it, the people who were being allocated these lands were also a particular, I mean, they were allocating land for large land holdings. Yeah. So, what was being produced in this? through the uh, through the, the British is, uh, you know, sharecropping system where there's, you know, a landlord and who's who owns these, I don't know, maybe 25, 50, 100 or more acres of land and he has sharecroppers working on those lands. And so, uh, I mean, there's all a larger story also with the gold standard and other things that we will we'll get into, which will be maybe complicating this still too much. But let's say with the production of canal colonies with you know ir- the, through irrigation, through railways, through the development of the port of Karachi, what we have is the construction of integrating Punjab with an international grain market, which is being established globally. And Punjab is part of this, uh, this process. And also the Suez Canal, which is in Egypt, you know, which was mm. also occupied that being developed, creating these kind of uh these uh, it's always. creating a
0: route for, for grain to go easily from Pakistan to Europe Because now exactly. it doesn't have to go all the way around Africa It can go right through that Suez Canal in Egypt And get into the Mediterranean
1: Exactly, so the, the veins of uh, this drain from Punjab Or from uh, uh, South Asia are being produced Right uh, I mean, and some of this maybe it's not all uh, with the same intention I mean, they're they all coming, in some ways are coming together And so what happens is that there's a lot of incentive for uh, agriculturalists in Punjab to produce cash crops, you know, in order to satisfy these land payments. And so what's an important cash crop is something like wheat. And wheat is becoming very important in a place like Europe, you know, which is uh, to make bread and to make uh, all kinds of things for the working class. I mean, if you can make, if you can provide cheap food, especially cheap grains, uh, you can also, you know, in real terms, you're, you're uh, increasing the wages of workers in Europe, right? And so this, uh, you know, there's this kind of concept, you know, you're asking me to, to kind of define So, you know, Harriet Friedman and Philip McMichael had come up with this kind of concept of food regimes and food regimes. They said that, uh, you know, with, the repealing of these corn laws, it created a, uh, a free trade system such that, let's say the British hegemony also controlled global agriculture. So there's kind of this, uh, this semblance where you, let's say at a certain point of time, let's say from like around the 1870s, you can see where British world hegemony is, has a corresponding relationship with a capitalist capital accumulation and agriculture production. And there is this kind of period from 1873 to uh, 1914. There's some debates about the exact period, but there's a certain way in which agriculture globally is organized and it follows certain patterns and rules. uh, And part of it is taking uh, grain production, let's say, in South Asia, uh, meat production and wheat uh, wheat production in North America, and that coming uh, to Europe. And part of uh, the British world hegemony was its control over this food system.
0: So part of what's happening, and it's really interesting the way that you you describe this picture, right? It's almost like an accumulation of small changes, and all of a sudden you're integrated into a world market. Um, what we have then is the creation of, as you said, an integrated global market. And that creates what you're calling a food regime, which is interesting basically, correct me if I'm wrong, what we're talking about is India acts for a certain period of time as one of the bread baskets for England specifically, but also Europe at large. So we're producing food, wheat, especially in West Punjab, we're producing wheat for, um, for, for Europe and, and for England.
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, what's happening is, let's say like, for example, in 1900 or like 1903, Uh, I'm remembering one statistic that India represented 25 percent of weed imports into England. Okay, Uh, wow. I mean, this is. uh, I mean, there's also it's uh, it's also having let's say weed being imported from. Uh, Canada, from United States, from Argentina, from Russia. So there's different producers around the world, uh, which is also interesting is that they all have their own temporalities of when their harvest is, is different from when Punjab is. And so Mm. it's also their capacity to fulfill their supply at different times of the year is also like through there. I mean, the United States become a very important wheat producer, uh, grain producer in, uh, in this period as well. But at at one point, India is a significant uh, grain producer. It's not, let's say, maybe it doesn't become the most important. The United States takes on that kind of role. But at one point, they were a very significant producer. And the agriculture that was being shaped in, let's say, a place like Punjab was very much shaped by this. I mean, people were, I mean... Uh, they did produce wheat in this area, but they also produced uh, millet. They produced uh, sorghum. Uh, There's a different kind of variety of grains and vegetables. But what was an increase in character is that cultivators start cultivating more of these cash crops. So, not satisfying their own subsistence, but rather sub- satisfying the what the international market is demanding.
0: Right. And Utsa Patnaik and Prabhat Patnaik have made the argument that. As soon as we start producing food for Europe, that reduces our own food availability. Like the caloric availability actually declines over the colonial years. And then that has implications for food security and people's access to food. I think some of the work you've done around that is also looking at that. And I think you argue that there was actually peasant resistance or there was resistance around um, food security in, in early uh, sorry, not early, but but in this kind of colonial period. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Uh yeah, I mean definitely. I can I mean so obviously this system is not a system where I mean one way of understanding it, and which is maybe the way the British were painting it, is that this was a system where everyone was coming together collectively to produce this system. Like, you know, we're all like cooperating towards this. We're uh, all in this
0: together, the the way that politicians talk about COVID-19 these days.
1: Yeah, and I guess we're all working together to making this wonderful global system. And that's, you know, I think many people do understand it that way. But I mean, if we're taking a uh, historical materials kind of understanding, we can see that this is something which is written with contradictions, that it's something which is conflictual. Uh, even if you are participating in it, you might also have uh, <coughs> doubts about it. You're also having, some sort of antagonisms about it. And, you know, people have different levels of consciousness and understanding of that system. Uh, I mean, so one thing which was, uh, if we're thinking about resistance, I mean, we could see that there's, like, different ways in which this system was creating conflicts. I mean, one was uh, you had uh, the introduction of moneylenders, And these were predominantly Hindu. And this is, you know, a question of how society was, you know, before the British was... Organized through caste, which is reinforced by the British and through these categories. Uh, and the moneylender becomes a, a more important figure with the introduction of a market money commodity based economy uh, in this colonial capitalist economy. And so here, uh, this moneylender is also having a situation where, you know, because peasants or let's say farm owners, let's say large landowners have difficulties in paying their. Yearly land revenue, they take out more loans, mm-hmm. and as they're increasing, you know, they're having these increased loans. They're also consuming more. You know, those shaddis they have to be paid by somehow. You have to show your status, uh, but they're also taking so they're taking out these debts. they you know, with these mortgages uh, that's which is something new. You know, you didn't have mortgages before uh, this. Uh, the British had arrived, and this kind of ideas of private property. And so people started losing their land. They couldn't pay off their debts. And so the money lenders started accumulating those. And so you did have, let's say, a situation, let's say, in Western Punjab where many times landowners were Muslim and the... uh, The moneylenders were Hindus. And so people saw this as a, I mean, I think they saw this in multiple ways. In one sense, this was a a Hindu, or or they had a conflict with Hindu baniyas Mm. rather than Hindus as such. Because they were not, the Muslim uh, peasants and landlords weren't fighting with the Hindu uh, peasants. They were fighting with the Hindu bania, which, you know, according to caste categories, was Hindu. And so there was, you know, these times where there was conflicts between the riots uh, there's also Hindus were also organizing, Hindu Hindubanias particularly, were organizing as a political formation, uh, sometimes around, you know, uh, protesting against the killing of cows. Uh, and so there's these kinds of conflicts were happening, which were surrounding also these, uh, this this global food regime. And it wasn't a system which was necessarily protesting against this, but it was an outcome of the situation. So this is like, let's say, one scenario you have. Mm. Uh, You also have uh, anti-colonial movements like the Gother Party, which uh, consisted of peasants from uh, some parts of Western Punjab, some parts of Eastern Punjab. And uh, once they started, you know, through their own political education, they came to a critique of colonialism. Once they saw uh, the exploitation that the British were doing, you know, taking all this wheat and making people hungry, you know, they... Uh, I mean, their primary political uh, campaign wasn't about necessarily about having greater food security, but it was a connected issue. They saw that you know the British were the reason why there was a lot of famines and hunger in this region, and so they uh, attempted an insurrection in 1915. It wasn't successful, uh, but you know they did organize, and one of their organizing aspects, let's say, a grievance that they had was the question of access to food.
0: Well, the, you mentioned the other party is actually really interesting in terms of, can we consider it properly to be a peasant movement? You know, there's this idea, sometimes a joke that because the British uh, built those canal colonies in West Punjab, because they allocated these lands to people, that, that made them kind of pliant, or they became submissive to the British. Uh, and that... While the rest of Pakistan or the rest of India might have been protesting or fighting British colonialism, the Punjabis were kind of just hanging out, um, chilling, right? And we get that idea with the unionist party, for example. So when you bring up the other party, that's, that's a really interesting um, example of, of West Punjabis and, and East Punjabis, as you said, who are organizing themselves into this kind of formation. So can you tell us a little bit more about the other party and like, who are these people? How do they become radicalized? and why do they try an insurrection?
1: Okay. Uh, so, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of prosperity that certain sections of the population were getting from these canal colonies. Uh, also, I mean, with the expansion of these canal colonies, uh, it wasn't always, you know, uh, it was never, it was not always good times. I mean, with, the, you know, you might have had moments where, you know, you had increased prices, and then you also had times where there's decreasing prices. I mean, you were also uh, succumbed to the market, the international market. Mm. And so there was, uh, you know, moments where there was an agrarian crisis you know, in the late 1890s. Uh, so, and there was also increased amount of uh, plague that uh, was coming into this region, uh, which was also connected to malnutrition, you know, and famines. And so there was a lot of out migration that started happening in Punjab. I mean, one that there was uh people in eastern Punjab who had this, you know, this this uh rain-fed agriculture, they had small plots of land, some of them went to uh the canal colonies. Uh, some of them, you know, they became tenants in these kind of colonies. They didn't find the situation as agreeable to them as they wanted. They thought it would be, mm. and you know, some of them they go back to maybe eastern Punjab, but then some of them also they go uh, outside the country. Uh, they go to parts of the British colonies, let's say like Singapore, East Africa, uh, also United States and Canada. Also, some of these, you know, in Punjab, you know, people sometimes oscillated, some section of the population oscillated between working in the army, working in the fields. And some of them had exposure because, you know, the British Indian Army, they went outside the country a lot uh, to fight wars for the British to make occupation in other countries. Uh, they got exposed to the, the outside world. And so they got interested in the idea of immigration. Mm. And so these kind of combined factors, you know, brought uh, these uh, some people who had some land, uh, let's say what we call uh, middle peasants, you know, so someone who had you know, some portion of land, they went to Canada, they went to the United States uh, and they thought that they were imperial citizens, that they, you know, belonged to the British Commonwealth. And when they went there, what they experienced was racism. Mm. And so they what they had expectations of, you know, becoming and participating in settler colonialism. in uh, in North America wasn't exactly what it panned out to be. I mean, they experienced that there was limitations for their wives to come to Canada or United States. Uh, There was questions of deportation. Uh, There was uh, anti-Asian riots that happened and, you know, Uh, They also, you know, some of these people work on farms, they work in factories, and they also get exposed to unions there. They also get exposed to anti-colonial ideas. Uh, They also meet, you know, people who are uh, involved in anti-colonial movements in Ireland and Egypt, uh, who are also, you know, in the United States and Canada. And so they get uh, exposed to anti-colonial ideas and they start seeing that, you know, their situation in North America can't be improved unless... We, they end colonialism in uh, in India, and so then they, you know, they have these different branches, which are partly associated with them. They're p- publishing a a newsletter, and those who are receiving these letter- newsletters uh, get information about, you know, these uh, anti-colonial uh, doctrines. And you know, they see that, you know, in 1914, the the war begins uh, in the in Europe. Uh, between England and Germany and they see that this is an opportunity you know they're fighting yeah. uh, this war if they go back you know all the troops are possibly in Europe if they go back they could rise up a uh, resistance to colonialism and they also see their name is Gathar and Gathar was also a word that was used to refer to the 1857 mutiny and right. they saw like this kind of echo backing Back to that point where there was a mutiny among, especially among soldiers, but also a, 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 a rising up among peasants. And so they saw that moment as an inspiration for their model. And so they thought we we're going to go back. Some of us had been involved in the army, we'll go into cantonments, we'll convince people about uh, resisting against the British. Uh, and uh, so they go back in uh, 1914. Uh, 1915 so the different you know Punjabis who uh, were exposed to these got their ideas they go back uh, and uh, I mean one thing which also happens as I said they start going to cantonments they try to organize people uh, over the winter of 1914 1915 uh, they also find that they need to get money and so then they they uh, they loot the money of money lenders uh, so there's I mean that old antagonism with That peasants had with moneylenders. They saw that moneylenders were also complicit in the system, so then they took their money to fund this revolution, and uh, they decided that in February 21st, 1915, that's the day we're going to have the uprising. We're going to have a mutiny uh, among the soldiers. It didn't work out that way. There were informants in -hmm. this uh, movement, and it kind of gets squashed. I mean, then the British, they they hang a lot of uh, Gother affiliates. and uh, But, you know, the movement continued in North America, and those who were Gother uh, party activists who survived, they also later on continued organizing through other political formations.
0: Right. They kind of laid the basis in many ways for people like Bhagat Singh um, and the Hindustan uh, Socialist Republican Association. Or was it the Hindustan Republican Socialist Association? Um, and then Nojawan Parat Sabha, and then also some of those people also formed the Communist Party of India, which perhaps we'll come back to in a bit. Uh, So that's a really uh, interesting link that you've made between kind of the the colonial economy and different forms of resistance and how they're mediated in some ways through food, or at least food is one aspect of that. Um, I want to maybe bring in Shahzab at this point and uh, talk to you about your work, which as you said was in South Punjab, now, the interesting thing about that is, is it kind of has some interesting parallels with the kind of work that I've done in NWFP or what is now but used to be the Northwest Frontier Province. And here also, like Qasim talked about the canal colonies that the British made in, uh, in, uh, in Punjab, the British also built canal colonies in the Peshawar Valley, especially in what is now Charsadda and Mardan districts. And these became extremely, like, incredibly fertile lands. Um, but there was these interesting dynamics that the land was, belonged to these, um, I guess, what we can call uh, tr- tribes, these tribes, and, and a particular tribe called the Muhammadzai in Charsadda. Uh And I think in Mardan, more Yusufzai uh, kind of tribes, or certain clans in the Yusufzai. Uh, so they build the canal colonies. Um, But before doing that, as Qasim was talking about, they're allocating these lands as private property. And before they do that, these lands would have been organized uh, to belong to each clan. Each clan would have common lands. And then each person, each family in that clan would have their own individual plot as well. And those common lands are what the British considered to be waste because nobody was cultivating them. And... So what they do is they find these so-called khans, a khan being a title for an influential person, um, or maliks who are the leaders of their clans. And they allocate the common land, the shamilat, as the private property of these individual khans or or uh, uh, maliks. And what happens is that overnight in the late 1800s, literally overnight, people go from having like, whatever, a few acres of land to having thousands of acres of land. And certain families then become very rich, right? It, it's not that clear initially because it's so-called wasteland. It's not particularly cultivated. It's commons land. It's used for you know, chara or or right? To the extent that they have uh, cattle, um, goats, and, and cows uh, are being are being uh, it's, it are being. I don't know what the English word for chara is, man. Um, this is what happens. So, but when they build those fodder, fodder, that's right. They're finding fodder for them on the grass, right? They're eating the grass. Well, what happens um, when the British build these canal colonies, though, all of a sudden, all of that common land that used to be quote unquote wasteland or uncultivated land, it is now land that you can farm year round. It's no longer just sitting there. Um, And now the thing is, I've got thousands of acres of land. I'm not going to cultivate that land myself. So to the west of Char and Mardan, there is a so-called tribal agency. This is an area that the British haven't really colonized yet. They can't really get there because the tribes in those agencies just won't let the British come in. Uh, they, they're they're fantastic fighters. And there's particularly a tribe called the Moman tribe, at the Momand agency. Uh, but there's other tribes there too, the Safi, the Uthman Khal, And so the British settle this land and they build these canal colonies also as a way to entice these tribes to come and now cultivate those lands, but they're going to be tenants. They're not going to have ownership rights. The ownership rights are with the Muhammad Zay. Uh, some of them may have hundreds of acres. Some have thousands of acres uh, and some just have a few acres, but most, many of them are now cultivating those lands using these Momand, uh, Safi with Khil migrants were tenants and that creates tensions later on but what we see is how how british colonialism has reshaped the landscape literally through the canals but also they've reshaped property relations they've made common land into the private property of individuals overnight they've turned them into like some of the richest people in in basically in pakistan or in india at that time it it was india um and i know from your work that you've seen similar dynamics in south Punjab. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how how colonialism reshapes that part of of Pakistan.
2: Uh, Yeah, so this part of Pakistan, of Punjab, you know, it was quite different from the rest of Punjab. It was called the Punjab frontier or the Deir frontier. And it was different. It was the border between Punjab and Balochistan and to the south, Sindh. And it was different because it had the presence of these big Baloch tribes who were organized and who were armed. And, you know, you see in settlement reports that the British are very concerned about the fact that these tribes are organized. They're very hierarchical. There's a, at the top, there's a tumandar, um, you know, chief, the major chief. And beneath the tumandar, there's petty chiefs called sardars. They're organized and um, they're armed. And so there's a really kind of an anxiety to try to um, take these Baloch tribes and settle them onto the plains. Before the British, during the Mughals and the Sikhs, uh, the Baloch tribes were generally, just like Upper Punjab, nomadic pastoralists, but they were also doing a bit of agriculture. Moving between the hills, this is the Suleiman Hills, um, bordering Balochistan and Punjab, and then coming down to the plains of the Indus. But they, The British came, and they wanted to kind of permanently settle um, the Baloch onto the plains. Um, and you see that the and they did so because, a, by settling them, they could it was they could kind of politically control these tribes. Um, a constantly moving tribe, amongst forests, these, the plains area was very forested, and you know the reports talk about the fear that these forests can you know provide a hideout for these tribes to attack the British. So they wanted to clear it, and settle them for political reasons, but also um, economic reasons as well. You know to generate a source of. Um, land revenue, um, And so you see them basically, you know, developing the canals like they did in Punjab, except it wasn't called canal colonies, uh, but they're extending the canals like they do in KPK as well, and um, enticing the, sort of, the to participate in the canal development with a promise that you will get not only propriety land, but Jagirs. And so this is, way, this is a way in which South Punjab and this part of South Punjab is quite different from Upper Punjab is by the existence of what were called Batai Jagir estates. So within a Jagir, the, the, each kind of tribal Tumandar who collaborated with the British got a Jagir. The, within the Jagir, um, the um, Tumandar had a certain amount of land that they owned as private property and from which they had tenants. In the beginning, a lot of the tenants were Punjabi Jats. Later, there, became, there was Baloch as well. So they had tenants from which they collected rents. And also anyone who had propriety, like small, small holders who own land within that Jagir, they had to give their land revenue not to the British, but to the Tomandai. Mm. And so effectively, the British, partly because they were very worried about these, you know, upsetting these tumandars, they devolve some, an aspect of sovereignty, which is the right to collect taxes onto these tumandars who collected the land revenue. And in fact, you see in the reports, they're like, we don't care if the, so you, we don't care if these peasants have to pay rents and land revenue to the tumandar because we want to make sure the tumandars are happy because an unhappy tumandar is more dangerous for us than an unhappy smallholder. And so you see Mm. Um, and so you see this kind of um, arrangement take place. Of course, there were certain tribes, so the two major tribes in the area who participated and collaborated with the British were the Mazaris and the Iligaris. Um, and because of their collaboration, they you know became huge landholders. And also now you see them, you know, big politicians, Shirin Mazari, who I'm sure your students know. Her ancestor was a big collaborator with the British. The Lagaris, Farooq Lagari, um, and that family, major political family in Pakistan, in part because of the collaboration their ancestors had with the British. Those tribes that rebelled against the British and did not participate in this, you know, creation of this jagir Bhattai system and the canal development in South Punjab, you see them, you know, um, getting shunted aside, and they're no longer powerful tribes. And so the political kind of dynasties that we see in today's Pakistan, you know, many of whom come from this area, it stems from the fact that their ancestors actually collaborated with the British uh, to bolster their wealth, their landholdings, and so forth.
0: That's that's absolutely fascinating because many of the same political dynamics are operating in, in Char as well and in, in Mardan, because the initially, if you read these reports, they're you know, the, the British are very racist, I guess, but they're like. The, the Muhammad Zai have this kind of criminal mentality and they just want to fight all the time. So we need to settle them. We need to like, right? like, that's the kind of thing that they're like, let's give them land and let's make them settled agriculturalists. And hopefully that will settle them down. Same with the Momans and all those let's, let's get them cultivating. Uh, but the thing that you are saying about uh, the way that Khans and Malik's Khans being kind of bigger, you know, one way we can talk about them is chiefs or sub chiefs also, um being allocated these lands um and many of them are still politically very powerful uh, although what's interesting in 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 the Hashnagar or the charsada area the wali khan um, the ghafar khan bacha khan they were khans who were allocated land but they were not necessarily the pro-british type uh, there were bigger khans so-called bigger khans who were more pro-british and they ended up joining the Muslim League ultimately, although now what we see the political dynamism um, remained with the the, the kind of Sufar Khan branch and the Wali Khan branch in that sense, in one sense. So that's super interesting. But the one thing I think that the difference being just the scale of land allocation that occurred in South Punjab is massive. Can you give us a sense of that? Because in 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 Jarsadda it might be like a thousand acres, several hundred acres, um, 5,000 yeah. acres, but that's, that's like nothing compared to what we see in South Punjab.
2: Yeah. I mean, by the 1920s, you see the Mazaris have around like a hundred and the one Mazari chief, the Tumandar has around 112,000 acres of land. Um, you know, a lot of it's not irrigated um, perennially, but um, a lot of it is. The Lagaris have a similar amount, upwards of a hundred thousand. Um, and in fact, one thing I want to mention is that, you know, Kase mentioned earlier, the you know losing a lot of the land through the Hindu money lenders. Um, mm. that was happening to these lagaris. they were at one point s- some chiefs used to come who had these estates and they were called estates and local people still refer to them as estates English word. Um, some of the in the early 20 in the early 1900s some of the lagaris were you know spending their money taking a lot of loans trying to you know, have these big weddings. They lost a lot of land and there was a crisis and a lot of the land was going potentially to the Hindu moneylenders, and there was a crisis to these estates. And then that's when this one key institution played a key role in actually upholding the integrity of these estates. And this is the court of wards, hmm. which I don't know if it did work in Upper Punjab, but in South Punjab, it was a key um, institution. So the court of wards was established by the British in um, you know, 15th century for, in England to um, initially protect the estates of the English nobility when they were in crisis, when they were in debt, when there was a dispute over inheritance and whatnot. But then it was you know, after 50 or 100 years, it was, in the 16th century, it was abolished. But then in the 18th century and 19th century, it was reinvented for British India in particular. And in South Punjab, on multiple occasions, that institution, the Court of wards, took over the estates when mm. they were going in debt. So the British supplied capital, um, you know, to the Hindu money lenders, They managed the estate, making sure the costs were, um, and making sure also that, um, you know, that sometimes that there was any tenant rebellion that happened sometimes because of high rents that the Lagaris were or the Mazaris were charging. They kind of stepped in and you know, redistributed some of that to the tenants as a counter-revolutionary kind of strategy. And ultimately with the intention of upholding these estates. So the fact, there was this possibility of these estates becoming smaller and smaller, but whenever there was that threat, the British stepped in to maintain the size of it on multiple occasions throughout the 20th century.
0: That's super interesting because I think in Upper Punjab, there's the Punjab Land Alienation Act, which makes it, in 1901, I think it was passed, which makes it illegal for a non-agrarian caste, so-called non-agrarian caste, to acquire land or to own land. And so, uh, you know, you may stay perpetually in debt, but your land, or you may sell your land to another agriculturalist. Right? A jat may sell their land to a jat uh, if they get in dire straits, but that land is not going to go to the Hindu money lender. Um, and I think you have similar contradictions with Hindu money lenders in uh, KP as well in, in Char and Mardan. In fact, there was a lot of Hindus in Mardan and, and uh, Char Sadda area, but but they all left uh, at the time of partition. Um, can you can you tell us Shahzib, a little bit about the, the tenant rebellions in your area that you're talking about? I know that when I was reading the, the settlement reports from Char in the 1920s, the British were complaining that these Momans who consider themselves to be full bakhtuns uh, don't want to see themselves as tenants they want to see themselves as owners of the land and so they're constantly you know getting into conflict with the the muhammadzai landlords um to the extent that if they're unable to pay their loans they just ran away they just went back to the hills where they came from and they're like we're not going to pay man we're not going to pay the rent we're just going to we're not going to pay the loans we're, we're out of here uh so what does what does rebellion look like in 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 south punjab
2: in the colonial period yeah Okay, yeah, I mean, so in the colonial period, what happened is, to my knowledge, there wasn't overt, you know, they could, there was kind of everyday forms of, you know, and subtle forms of resistance. There wasn't a big, uh, in South Punjab, at least, there wasn't a major uh, peasant rebellion, but the reports do talk about, you know, as, because effectively, you know, before the British, there was inequality between the tribal chiefs and their followers. But because of pastoral livelihoods and because of the lack of like private property and landed estates, that inequality of class wasn't that severe. But as the chiefs settle on the lands, get thousands and thousands of acres, and then a lot, a lot of their tribesmen become below tenants, you see this kind of sharp, um, you know, in, inequality emerging, um, root, an inequality rooted in unequal distributions of landed property, um, and that inequality, and then. What happens is, um, you see kind of um, the rumblings of certain chiefs come in, inherit their estates, and refuse to participate in some of the reciprocal exchanges that are involved in the relationship between a tribe chief and the tribesmen. You know, earlier, before the British, often those reciprocal exchanges involved um, redistribution of booty during raiding. Tribes would raid and then redistribute that booty. The chief would keep some, but redistribute it. But as, you know, in the 20th century, that redistribution wouldn't happen as much. And so you see a lot of anger sometimes, and the reports talk about tenants being angry at their chiefs, and in particular, you know, Jamal Khan Lagari, who was, I think, Farooq Qari, the president of Pakistan, his grandfather, very angry at him because he then got involved in politics, wasn't spending time with his tribesmen, wasn't redistributing some of the wealth that he had accrued to his mm-hmm. tribesmen, was still charging a lot of rents. And very angry at that, and that's when the British stepped in at one point and took over the estate of Jamal Khan Laghari because he was, you know, there was a potential riot, you know, brewing. Um, so there was that. There was the kind of the, you know, the slow, quiet expressions of discontent that happened amongst the kind of Baloch tenants. Um, yeah.
0: So if we if we move on from this kind of Moment of of the creation of the food regime that Qasim talked about, and and settling land and uh, building canals that that we're looking at in um, in in Jarsada and also in South Punjab. Uh, I think there's a series of agrarian crises over the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, um, and I'm wondering if if uh, Qasim, you could shed some light on what's going on there because my my understanding is that in the 1930s was like a wave of peasant struggles throughout India. Uh, and some of that stuff happens in Charsada and Mardan as well, which we can maybe touch on. But, but what is the context in which we've got like a, a food crisis in, in the 30s, 40s, 50s?
1: Okay, yeah. Uh, so one thing which is quite important in the, ninth, the late 1920s and early, uh, and speaking like, you know, also 1930s, is that you have a, at a global scale, a, the Great Depression. Mm. and what, uh, what was involved in the Great Depression in uh, material terms for this region is that you have a drop in agricultural commodity prices. Now, if you have a drop in agricultural commodity prices, and you know, if we're also thinking the like canal colonies in uh, western Punjab is involved in things like uh, cash crops like cotton and wheat... Uh, which, you know, these were key commodities that we were being produced in the canal colonies. Uh, if their prices are dropping, then people's, uh, let's say as a landlord, your income is decreasing. Mm. And if you want to maintain your uh, having, you know, you want to maintain your income, uh, you know, there's different strategies. And the strategies that, you know, landlords took on was, Exerting more from their tenants, and so you know you could have a the custom of ada ada, like you know giving having your tenants uh, expecting them to give half of their harvest. Uh, I mean, in different areas, you didn't have ada ada. Maybe it was like uh, you gave one third to the landlord, or maybe you gave more than a half. Uh, so these were always uh, contingent on particular regions. Uh, depending on you know the question of power and the capacity of landlords to exert and for tenants to uh, to resist uh, so one thing which you start happening in the 1930s is that landlords are trying to exact more from uh, more share from tenants and this is you know creating strife among tenants and you know it also creates resistance at the same time you know uh, another uh, backstory here is it. The Russian Revolution in, in 1917 mm-hmm. creates a lot of, inspires a lot of people in across the world in thinking about uh, revolution, thinking about another world, thinking about an anti-colonial future, and so many people in South Asia they traveled, you know, people who were uh, militants, those who were in the Gullah Party, they tra- uh, they traveled to uh, to Moscow. There's also people who were involved in the Khilafat movement. Some of them got, uh, they were going to go to Istanbul to defend the Khilafat, but they got uh, distracted. They met some communists. They met some Bolsheviks and uh, they went to Moscow as well. And so you have, uh, you know, you have Muslims, you have Hindus, you have Sikhs who are going to Moscow and the people that say the Ghala party, they're getting inspired by this. And so they're coming back with these ideas of communism. And so you have, Uh, the Communist Party of India forming in the mid-1920s. And uh, some of these, you know, the one thing that they, which was very key for the communists was organizing workers, but also in the South Asian context, it was organizing peasants. Mm. You know, whether it was people with land or it was uh, sharecroppers. Uh, And so you have different formations which are communist oriented or associated with the Communist Party, uh you know like in 1928 you have the kirti kasan party uh in the let's say the mid 19 like in 1937 you have the Punjab Kissan committee uh which was it did organizing across Punjab you know in central Punjab also in western Punjab and uh one thing which was let's say in in western Punjab in places like the Bari Duab uh where there was a large tenant population they were principally organizing tenants there. And so there was this uh, dimension of political organizing of these tenants, you know, going to the different chuck, going to the different villages and uh, discussing with them what are the issues that they're facing uh, and then seeing patterns across the board. And one issue which was very common among these sharecroppers was the amount of uh, the portion of the harvest which is being taken by the landlord and so this would became an important organizing principle across different parts of uh, western Punjab and even in some parts of central Punjab and so in 1937 you see uh, 10 struggles which are very much based uh, the site of struggle is the agricultural field Hmm. where they're trying to uh, take their portion their assigned portion Ah, uh, literally, physically, uh, or you know, they could say occupying and uh, preventing the landlord from entering, and then them taking their portion of the harvest. Uh, you see also a rise of this these kinds of movements also in the 1940s, like in 1945, 1946. Uh, it becomes interrupted with partition, but there was massive amounts of uh, tenant struggles in Punjab, you know, in the Bhai Doab, in parts of uh, near Amritsar uh, and near Lahore. Uh, which was happening you know around the time when uh Pakistan is being also i mean just before Pakistan is being formed, and yeah. actually these tenant struggles even go on in in western Punjab, they even continue in uh, the late nineteen forties and even the early nineteen fifties
0: yeah, i hope we can uh, we can touch on that in a second uh Shahzib, do you do you have something in the nineteen thirties going on in south Punjab?
2: yeah I just wanted to add um so um you know a lot of people say you know, when, in terms of peasant agitations and communism in Punjab, it was a predominantly Sikh phenomenon. And people have written about why that is. And you mentioned it earlier, you know, Gadda Party, Kirti Kassan Party, largely Sikh Jats were leading it. Um, and, you know, explanations of why Muslims were involved or the allegedly weren't involved is because of their ties to the Unionist Party. They're happy and compliant and complacent because of the uh, canal colonies but in south Punjab during that period in fact there was this figure called um Sindhi, mm. who people should know who in fact you know were, grew up spent his childhood in jampur where i lived for for 18 months and he was a sick so maybe that was why he converted to islam at a young age so maybe not, but he wasn't then he became a muslim and became a muslim and then from jampo moved to Sindh a bit and then got involved with the move to um Diyuband and got mm. involved with deobandism and from there, eventually um, went to, the, was, went to the, um, the Soviet Union in 1922. And apparently he met Lenin or tried to meet Lenin, but he was a, this, a state guest of the Soviet Union and combined and really got inspired by that kind of um, communism in Russia and then came back in Soviet Union, came back to um, India, back to South Punjab and the border with Sindh and created what was called like a Diobandi communism, you know? Mm we typically think of Diobandi as being kind of Islamist, backward, scripturalist, literalist, but he kind of gave it a new inflection. And in fact, and, you know, an org- I mean, he kind of tried to organize amongst the Hadis and Sindh and also some of the tenants in, in South Punjab, but he wasn't really successful, I think partly because of the, the consolidation of the, the estates and the backing that the states had, but it left its traces. And his kind of blending of kind of the Islam and communism in that region would play into later shape, kind of, you know, Bashani had a similar kind of way of blending Diobandi Islam with communism. Mm. And then other, as we'll talk about later, other ways of thinking about Islam's relationship to communism, um, he would kind of set the stone for that. So there, in South Punjab, even though there wasn't major agitations, there was kind of um, everyday forms of resistance, but also, new forms of ideological kind of commingling and in subvert, subversive insurgent ideas that would later in other contexts and other conjunctures play a part to play in actually kind of really unsettling these estates.
0: I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned Molana uh, Ubedullah Sindhi uh, because uh, one of the figures that I came across in, in my research in uh, NWFP is uh, Maulana uh, Abdurrahim Popalzai. And so nowadays, people know the Popalzai's because they have a mosque in uh, Peshawar, I think, where they're they're the ones who are in charge of telling you whether or not it's Eid or Ramadan or whatever, right? Th- it's the Popalzai's But they're kind of <laughs> their predecessor, Abdurahim uh was uh, also I think part of the Khilafat movement. Um, but when he when he he gets influenced by Ubedullah Sindhi, uh, he's one of his associates. Uh, he's a Deobandi scholar. People used to call him Mufti of Sarhad, so he's like the Mufti of Sarhad, right? He's a very accomplished Islamic scholar, but he spent most of his time going around organizing peasants in, in the NWFP. Um, and one of these movements in the 1930s, one of these peasant movements takes place in Mardan. It's a town called Ghallar uh, And uh, it actually happens under the auspices of the Congress Socialist Party. So I think at this time in the 1930s, the communists are mostly operating underground. Many of them go into Congress and in there they become part of the Congress Socialist Party. Uh, so Congress, Indian National Congress had these multiple, it, it, you, could, you could have different affiliations within it, and w- one section was the Congress Socialists. Uh, and in fact, Abdurrahim Pobalzai was, was uh, influenced by this other figure eh, who's very important, whose name is, uh, I forget his full name, but uh, people call him Kakaji. Kakaji is like uncle. Kakaji Sanobar, uh, who's also an important communist, early communist in, in the frontier, uh, and he's part of, uh, Bhagat, Bhagat Singh is dead, but the Nojawan Bharat Sabha lives. Like people kind of think that the Nojawan Bharat Sabha ended with Bhagat Singh, but that's not true. These guys organize the Nojawan Bharat sabha units in, in the frontier. They go start working amongst peasants and Abdurahim Popalzai comes out of that. Uh, Sanobar runs away, by the way, the British are trying to capture him. So he runs away to the Momand agency where he engages in armed resistance, but Abdul Rahim Pobalzai is, uh, is there, he's operating in Mardan. Um, and there in Mardan, you have these massive landlords. Again, you know, we talked about how they were created. And one of them, I think the Nawab of Toru. Uh, uh, these, these Nawabs, like you mentioned, uh, Shahzab, the British didn't administer these villages directly. Like there wasn't a bureaucracy that directly administered these villages. These Nawabs, these Khans, these Arbabs, they had the right to collect the revenue for the British, they, they collected their own rent and they collected revenue. Uh, and if there was a quote unquote law and order problem, they would you know, put it to, to rest. So the the, the the interesting part then is uh, this Nawab uh, imposes some collective fine on the village and that sparks a peasant rebellion. Abdur-Rahim Pobolzai is leading that. That then sparks other Congress socialists to start organizing peasant rebellions in, um, in Charsadda, for example. And then later, uh, Pupulzai is arrested and he's kind of upset because the Congress party was in power in NWFP, I think, it, at that time. So they were actually going against Congress. The socialists were fighting Congress at that time. Um, and then later, Pupulzai goes to Mancera. Mancera is part of the Hazara division at that time. And in Mansera, he goes village to village. Uh, there's this beautiful kind of uh, memoir written by this this comrade of Popalzai who went with him, um, and they're going village to village, organizing tenants. Um, there's uh, who who then protest, and then there's a report that gets published. There's an inquiry that the British colonial government, actually the Congress government, sorry, not the not not the British. Um, they conduct an inquiry in 1939 into the, the the matter of the landlord tenant tension in the Mansera district but they erase any mention of bhopal Zai, they erase mention of socialists right so it's interesting in the the way that the specter of socialism is haunting the the british in the in the frontier and in other parts of of india at this time but they they don't necessarily the, the british and the congressites um And the Congress is against some of these kind of feudal excesses, right? One of the things we talk about is bigar. Bigar being uh, coerced labor or unpaid labor that the landlords collect from the tenants. They have the right to do that. Um, And uh, they're protesting that. And and the the Congress is kind of against these quote-unquote feudal practices. They want a more modern agriculture, but they're not interested in the 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 thing that is really making a lot of people upset which is ownership of the land why do these landlords get to own this land who gave them this land how is it allocated because for people it's still fresh in their minds that these settlements only happened maybe 30 years ago or 20 you know uh 40 years ago it's not it's not ancient history so it's interesting how you mentioned this kind of um lineage the other party uh, Maulana Obedullah Sindhi, who's combining Islam and communism, that's exactly what Maulana Abdurrahim Popalzai is is doing. Uh, he's combining Islam and revolutionary socialism, uh, and and these these kinds of movements that are moving around, and they're they're interested in engaging with peasants.